You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to Dear Culture. I'm your host, Panama Jackson, here where we have conversations with amazing people for, by, and about the culture, hence the name Dear Culture. It's 2023, which means we're celebrating 50 years of hip-hop culture uh, in America, but worldwide, really, because without without hip-hop, the world is not running nowadays, right? So over the course of the year, we're going to end up having these amazing conversations with people who've contributed, people who are part of it, people who look from 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 50,000 feet up and people who are probably 10 toes down in it right now as we speak. My my guest today, she is from East Orange, New Jersey, right? East Orange? You got it. She is an executive editor at Disney Publishing Worldwide. There you go. For Anscape. For Anscape Books. For Anscape Books, yes. But she's written for The Source. She's written for Vibes, held editor positions in places like Billboard, and, and she's written for Ebony. She's been all over the place. She has best-selling books. She wrote a book. Let me get make sure I get the title right. Keep the Faith with, uh, re- with platinum recording artist Faith Evans, which I imagine Absolutely. was a story unto itself. Absolutely. Uh, she also co-authored Original Gangster with Frank Lucas, on whom the film American Gangster was based. She's written novels of her own and... Like you've written about hip hop, you've written, and now you are in a gatekeeping position. Uh, though I, I guess the term gatekeeping, I don't know if that has negative connotation, but you're in a position to help inspire and lead the next crop of voices into the future. So please put your hands together for our guest today, Miss Aaliyah King Neal. How you doing? I'm great. That was a great introduction. Oh, thank I you. I'm it. glad. I listen to a lot of people do intros on podcasts. I'm trying to keep up because you know who's really good at those things? Questlove. That man does amazing introductions of his guests. And I'm like, I need to be able to do stuff like that. Um, yeah, I get it. He's good. Right. He's great. So, one, thank you for being here. I'm excited to have you here. I've known you for years, worked with you, uh, VSB, The Root, various places. But you are somebody who's whose journey in writing is one that's very fascinating to me. And I've told you this several times, like you've been in all the places that I've always wished I could be, especially when I was younger, before I even realized that I was going to be like a writer, like all the places I read, like the source, um, like vibe and, and, and you've got stories about all this stuff, like stockpiled and tapes and all this stuff. So I wanted to take an opportunity to talk to you about that, especially as we're celebrating 50 years of hip hop, because you've been, a part of that narrative and a part of that story. And for what I'm thankful for, but I want to make sure that I do my part in making sure people like yourself get an opportunity to share that. So let's talk about the fun at the source. Cause the, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you here was to kind of talk about hip hop journalism and its transition over time. Right? Like I know how essential it was to the culture because there were no other voices out there. Right. At the time, like it's, Mm -hmm. we had to do that. It seems like, all of you all that were on the ground level back then had to you had to make a way, right? We literally, it was the only way to get respectful, decent discussions and dialogue about hip hop that wasn't done with this veneer of this little fad or this, you know, and this is this is my know. maybe okay, no, go ahead. That's not true, Panama. That's not true. At least okay. not in my era. What you're saying was more true in like late 80s, early 90s. By the time I come around, you might see um the occasional musical acts uh get a decent review i remember wyclef's the carnival was the lead review in rolling stone when it came out and that was like whoa like it was huge you know um so, so by the time poor, i came pitch around, pork and every pitchfork and everybody is is right all in yes. okay by the time <laughs> i came around you still want the source but the other folks are starting to see that you can sell some magazines with this as a matter of fact when i got to the source um, Jan Winter, who owned Rolling Stone, had just offered Dave Mays $30 million for the source, cash. And that was bubbling around and people were talking about that. Interestingly enough, no one at the source was talking about it. Like, they're not reading the Wall Street Journal, but I was like, hey, guys, uh, $30 million? Anybody heard about this? But I don't know. Anyway, he did turn it down. But yeah, by the time I get there, people get it. Um, we're still the we're still the uh, preferred place right. to have your stories told, but by '98, 
it's starting to, we're starting to lose our chokehold. We still got the hold, but maybe not the chokehold. So what does that feel like? I mean, that has to be an interesting time to be there then, right? Um, yes. Uh, but I think what made it, the source had money. Let's start there. When I get okay. there in 98, there's nothing I can't do. There's nothing I can't ask for. There's nothing that my boss is going to say, no, we can't afford that. When I got hired, my boss was selling Seifu Hines, who I'm still close to today. When I got hired, he was like, think outside the box. Just do what you want. You know, let me know. So I thought it would be cool to follow three newly signed rappers through the first year of being signed. And I wanted to follow one person from the West Coast, one person from the Midwest, and one person from the East Coast. And my plan was to fly out to see each artist once a month with my photographer, see how they're doing, and then write about it for the next month. Fly out to the West Coast with a photographer once a month for a year. And not with one artist, but two. And so I pitched it to someone and he was like, that sounds cute. Let's do it. Like, there was no pitching it to some of the sales team or where is this going to come from? It was literally like, go ahead, book the flights, get out of my office. So having that kind of freedom was just dizzying and intoxicating. So all the other things, like, like maybe things starting to change, I didn't see or feel it because there was just so much I could do. And there was so much respect that I got. Like, I often tell people my business card was a weapon. Like you did not just give anybody your business card. This is embossed the source with my name, associate editor, and the address, 215 Park Avenue South. Like you don't just give that to anybody because they might lose it. And that's the truth. They really might lose it. So um, I will never again work at a place that, I mean, Disney's close. You tell people you work at Disney and their ears perk up a bit, like, okay. Yeah. But nothing like, nothing like the source. I'll never see anything again like that. So I was, for the whole time I was there, it was a moneymaker and everything was going really well, except for that one source awards where, yeah, I guess we'll get into that. Um, let's but, get into it. Go ahead. <laughs> let's, 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 mean, let's talk about it. Okay. So that's when I started to see. I start to see that things are breaking down um, by 2000. We are going to try to do the Source Awards. It's infamous from back in the 94, I think it was, um, long before, you know, I was there. They had the infamous Source Awards where... 95, I believe you're talking about. It was the, the 95, 95 Source Awards, I believe, yes. Um, where there's a lot of booing going on and the infamous line from Suge Knight all up in the videos. Like, it was just a mess. Any artist out there want to be an artist and want to stay a star and don't want to, don't want to have to worry about the executive producer trying to be all in the video, all on the record, dancing, coming death row. So they let that go for a bit. So now we got money, we got sponsors. Let's do the Source Awards again. I go to the Source Awards. My like partner in terms of like sharing a hotel room and flights is my co-editor, Kim Osorio, who I'm also still close to. Kim and I go to the Source Awards and we're sitting back there watching this, um, these performances, which all are, are all a bit of a mess. The production was just a mess. So then we hear like this rumble, like just this, I can't even explain it. It was like an earthquake. It sounded like an earthquake coming from behind us. And we look back, we see Suge and I don't know, 50 dudes. And they're all wearing, wearing these t-shirts that say, dead man walking with a picture of Snoop on on it. So we're like, oh, that's that's not good. Snoop's on the stage. Right. And they're walking onto the stage with these. So the stage goes nuts. The whole audience is a hot mess. Kim is nine months pregnant. I think I might have forgot that part. Yes. And we just yeah. see a wave of people running and jumping and stampeding to get out. So I push her down. We're in, down, down, down in the auditorium seats. We wait for everybody to go out. We hear gunshots. We run to the bathroom. We stay in the bathroom for about, I don't know, two hours until the cops come and we feel safe coming out. Um, so that's when I was like, 
this is not good. The magazine can be as good as it wants, but if that brand is having an award show that ends this way, advertisers are not interested. You know, this show y'all are trying to do, you're not going to get sponsors for this if this is what you're doing. So sadly, what I started to notice was that it was not going to just be about good writing. It's just, you can have the best writers in the world, but you also have to have a brand that's strong. And as the writing got better, the brand was becoming weaker. Yep. Hold that thought right there. We're going to take a real quick break and come back because that's exactly where I wanted to go. I'm, you walked right into that. We'll be right back here on Dear Culture with Aaliyah King-Neal. All right, we're back here on Dear Culture. I'm here with Aaliyah King-Neal. We're talking hip-hop journalism. She was just telling us a story about the... What, what year was this? Was this 2001? What, what year was that? It's either 2000 or 2001. Okay, the Source Awards where Shook... Shook, who loves to, to, to rabble-rouse at the Source Awards, apparently. Anyway, creating an environment where you and Kim Osorio had to hide for two hours in a bathroom because gunshots rang out and all kind of stuff. Yep. And, yes. you know, you're talking about how you notice, like, you're, it's like you just mentioned thinking about it as a business. Like, the writing is good. The brand is known for these other things, like the writing has to be on the wall somewhere, right? So I, I guess my question here, and this is kind of a hip-hop journalism question in general, it's like, what's the environment for hip-hop journalism at this time in general that you can speak to across, like, the industry? I've read so many profiles, people talking about how much money the different magazines had because of all the ad dollars and all of these things at this time. And there were some amazing stories in these magazines, right? I mean, they're mm-hmm. like this is where you go to if you're have an interest in hip hop. But right. what's the environment like? Because there were all these stories about writers getting punched in the face by artists, and yep. you know, and obviously that wasn't the norm. But you know, like right. there's this tension between the access of artists and the people profiling them, and it's like and hip hop having this certain. Um, especially at that time, like, you know, the realness, the authenticity to it and people not, you know, not liking bad reviews or not liking the way they're characterized or, you know, so what's the environment like and all that? How does all that tension work together for the job of ultimately documenting the culture uh, that that is needed? So it's interesting you say that because, and I always try to explain that to people that I was not part of the scene. I was in the scene and I was the scene, but I wasn't part of the scene. So when you talk about, you know, um, artists being not happy with their reviews and and reacting, I saw that. That wasn't my experience. Unless you want to count, what was this boy's name? Because he really wants to beat me up. Uh, Yonkers, Rough Riders. Um, Yonkers, Rough Riders, Eve. Like one uh, of the, like the not DMX, not, not drag, D- on, drag on, drag, drag on. on. Okay. Drag yes. on, drag so, on was not a fan. Okay. I gave a drag on a two and a half star review, which is just, uh, yeah. So he wasn't At the time fair. The I remember that album. It, you know, I, I stand by it, but the thing about it is they kind of, my editors kind of walk me into the fire with that because normally you wouldn't even write a review if it's only going to get two and a half stars. If that had been DMX, even if it was a shitty album, they weren't giving him two and a half stars. You kidding me? We need you on the cover next month. Right. But it's dragging on. So let Aaliyah go give him this shitty review. She's been talking about how much she doesn't like this album. I didn't realize that until I met with him. And I'm like, wait, why are you even getting this review? Anyway, um, so I was in it, but not in it. You know, um, I saw a lot, but... My versions of that, like people always ask me about Ray Benzino, for example. You hear all the stories, Benzino, Benzino, he was horrible, he was terrible. Um, I didn't really come into contact with Benzino that often, you know. Um, I knew of his presence and I saw him with Dave lots, but right. I did not have the experience that other folks had. The only thing I can tell you is that um, when his album came out, whichever album came out while I was working there. Um, he gave out the CD with everybody's paycheck. So like the paycheck goes on your desk and the CD goes on top of it. And he's looking at you like, just so you know, the connection. 
And I was like, N-word, if you don't get out my face and give me my check, like, I'm not playing these games with you. Um, so I didn't feel, people above me felt tension because they could make decisions and he could override them. But I wasn't really a decision maker like that. So I didn't have those same experiences, though I know they existed. So when you say, let's look at the wider um, thing, it's so beautiful what was happening during that time. Yes, there were fights. and Yes, there was drama. But you had something like, I'll cry right now thinking about what XXL was able to do with a great Dan Hip Hop. Um, yeah. They did this. They did a cover, a cover, I guess, a remake of A Great Day in Harlem. And I, I have chills right now thinking about how Sheena Lester put that together and how that stands for the history, for the rest of time that she was able to get those people together. I want to say it was like 100 MCs, maybe more. It was just beautiful. So that's still happening. She got Gordon Parks to shoot it. The yeah, person who that. shot A Great Day in Harlem. No other time are you going to get that. You're not going to have get that magazine. I still have that one. Yep, I actually still have it. You, you know, the idea that you would get, I think that's really a great example of how, what hip hop journalism meant, that you could get Gordon Parks to shoot that. Because if you give me the same level of photographer now, I don't know if we're going to be able to get them to shoot a bunch of MCs. Actually, I don't think you're going to be able to get a bunch of MCs together. Um, so you got XXL doing a great day in hip hop and all of their awesome profiles. And then you have Vibe, which is just killing it. So was it always capable? Maybe not. But if you look at all of the vibes during Danielle Smith's reign, her first reign, you're going to see a lot of number one artists on that cover. And you're going to know of a lot of publicists of number two artists that were pissed off. She wanted the best of the best. And I don't care. She don't care if you're her friend. She don't care if you're her boyfriend, which became an issue much later. She don't care. Like, she's going to have the best of the best. Um, when Mimi, when Blaze started, people never believe me when I tell them that Blaze was a million-dollar launch. People say, oh, they spent a million dollars on the magazine over the course of the first year. And I have to say to them, they spent a million dollars launching the magazine. They spent one million dollars launching the magazine. Where's all that money coming from? Because that, that was like such a... So, and Blaze was short-lived, right? Like It Blaze was, was not, but it wasn't like, supposed to be. Well, yes, that's true. But like, was it just that much money floating around for hip-hop, like hip-hop in general at that time? I, I know this is the era of million-dollar videos, and like, there's just money everywhere. It's just like, it's just hitting it's all everywhere. corners the money is of, just of there. hip-hop. Don't forget, don't forget, by 99... Every one of my coworkers has left to go to a website. All of them. All okay. of them are yep. going to volume, going to, um, I can't even think of all the names of them right now, but they're gone. And those places are spending millions. You know, I wrote a story not too long ago um, about that time period, that 18 month time period between 98 and early 2000, $75 million was sunk into five hip hop websites. $75 million went like that. So you asking me how they had a year, how they had a million to launch Blaze. Yes, yeah, A year from now, they're going to have $75 million to launch websites. Like, I remember reading that profile about um, about the, the, the websites because I found the era so fascinating, especially as we get further into the blog era of hip-hop because it's like, it's like all hip-hop journalism, so to speak, and even what that means, kind of got decentralized as a whole and everybody and their grandma has like a, a hip-hop site and i feel like all that money that was sunk into all those websites back then like i it just i don't know if it and you can answer this better than i could like did it pay dividends down the line because it just seems like no. all of that stuff online just basically it did just, not it didn't it didn't last it was unable to last and everybody realized they could do it themselves right like you know like, all hip-hop was one of the few that I think lasted a really long... Like, that, that's where I got my first opportunity. The only. Not one of the, the few. Only. Okay. All hip-hop yeah. is the only site still running from that time period. And, if I'm not mistaken, they never took any sponsors or ad dollars or any of that. They were just in the mix at that time. They're the only site. That that makes... You know, that's where I got my first hip-hop writing credit was allhiphop.com. Like, I... 
five six months after i started my blog somebody who read my site knew chuck and reached out to him was like yo this guy's a really good writer he loves hip-hop and i got my opportunity to write and the first rapper to ever read an article that i wrote and then send me an email about it uh from allhiphop.com was diamond d i almost framed that thing i was like diamond d read something i wrote yeah i mean i still have the email don't get it twisted i still have the email i know exactly where it is it's I, I have it. So I guess in, in in that way, that time period, it did bring us folks like you. It did bring us people. It didn't bring us, you know, they, there was some beautiful content done during that time. I never participated because if my mama can't hold my work in her hand, then I'm not doing it. <laughs> um, so that was just. It was very hard for all me. of us to explain being a blogger to people like you do what I write online like why so can i like, see it? can't you be doing something better like can you do something better with your time like what are you doing time for a quick break stay with us and we're back also we need to talk about money for a bit not just the brands but the people because um i started off at the source i started making thirty three thousand as a staff writer which is a respectable amount of money for 1998 um, right. at Billboard, I was making 18000 So I damn near doubled my salary when I came to the source. And I was like, whoo. Um, but soon after, maybe a year after, Team People called, because I was freelancing for Team People on the low. At the source, you were not allowed to freelance for anyone, anything ever, hip-hop or not. But I still did. And the woman was like, hey, we have a position for you. I think it was entertainment editor. It was some big leap. And the pay was 50000 And I was like, ugh, but there's no way. There's no way I'm leaving the source for nobody. I don't care that team people, I'll be in that people pipeline and probably be good for the rest of my career. Who knows? Ain't no way I'm leaving the source, not even for $50,000. I'm, I'm good with my 33. But then I learned, because I didn't know this, that when you get an offer, you go to your boss. Your boss doesn't have to know that you don't want to take it. And you tell them. I literally had no idea that that was a thing you could do. I thought maybe when it was time to negotiate 10 down, ten years down the road, I could bring it up. Right. I go to my boss and I said, hey, I interviewed that team people. And they want to, and he interrupted me and was like, how much, Aaliyah? He has his head down. And I'm like, 50,000. He's like, all right, 55,000. Starting next pay period. Can you go? And I was like, oh, Okay. Well, just didn't even like get out my face. We've been we've been underpaying you for a year already. You just found yeah. out. Like, goodbye. So I started making 55 and I learned, you know, I learned a lot about that. And that was a decent amount of money. Probably still getting underpaid, but um when I left and started freelancing, one of my first pieces for Vibe was a cover story on uh Ciara and Bow Wow, who were dating at the time. Right. And the story was 3,000 words, as most cover stories were at that time. Um, and I was getting paid a dollar a word, which was a respectable amount of money. And if you're writing cover stories and you single living in a studio, you know, $3,000 is a cute check. Cute check. That's a cute check so now. Let's in. be honest. Like a dollar a word it's nowadays, a for now. like a, a, that's, that's good money now. It's a cute check now. Yes. Um, yeah, no, we're not those dollars, but get this. So I go into the office while they're working on the story and the editor in chief at the time says to me, are you good? You know, how'd the story come out? Da, da, da. I'm like, great. This is, and I'm getting $3,000. And she was like, what do you mean you're getting $3,000? And I'm like, shoot, did I just F up my check? What the heck? And I was like, well, I always get paid a dollar a word. And she was like, you should be getting $2 a word. You go right back into accounting and tell them that you do not work for less than $2 a word. And don't let me find out that you're working for any of these magazines for less than $2 a word. I was like, oh my God. So I go into accounting and I'm like, um, before you make that contract out, I think that's supposed to say $2 a word. And she's like, what's your name? Aaliyah S. King. Okay, fine. Two dollars a word. I'll send it out to you. And I was like, you know what, y'all? This is absolutely ridiculous. I got paid six thousand dollars for that story. Um, wow. The next piece was Faith Evans. I was Faith Evans was on the cover. Another six thousand. Trying to think. I did a couple more covers, but 
for the time that I was doing cover stories for Vibe, I got paid two dollars a word, and it was then that I found out Vanity Fair is paying five dollars a word. And Rolling Stone might be paying six dollars. Like I didn't even know that world existed. I'm happy with my pickle juice, as Nicki Minaj will call it. I'm happy with my dollar word. That's a come up. And it turns out it wasn't much of a come up at all. I actually ended out with two fifty a word just off GP. One day I was like, okay, now I charge two dollars and fifty cent, and they're like, fine. So I'm like, Jesus. So the money was definitely there. No one was even thinking twice about the money. It was just, it was there. You want to do a photo shoot in Iceland? Yay, let's go, y'all. We going to Iceland. Okay, maybe not Iceland. I might be an exaggeration, but I mean, but this all whatever. sounds amazing. Like, let's like real talk. Because I think about like that. So, for one, you just enlightened me. I had no idea people got paid that much money for cover stories, or and probably should have got paid more for those things. Like, I had no idea. Like, so you were lowballed yep. number one. Found out yep. that you were lowballed. Was able to go and just say, "Hey, you owe me more than that." Like, you're right. Boom, let's do this. But other places but are paying this much money. But if my editor hadn't told me that, I would have taken a dollar word forever. Which is kind of like how, like nowadays, you know, people, it's one of those things where, like, how much money people make for these things is so hush-hush because it's either people are getting paid really well or not well at all, right? But nobody knows what the right scale is. Like, it's hard to figure out the scale. It's like, if you can use your name to leverage more money, then boom. And that's probably not going to happen in mainstream media. My editor might not have looked me out like that. She didn't have to do that. But she just was like, no, I've, I've known this girl since she did her first piece for us. Like, it was more of a family. And I'm a freelancer. I don't even work there. And she needed, and she wanted me to make sure not only that I was taking care of for that story, but for any story to come. She was like, nah. And I recently had the opportunity to pay that forward because I hired a ghostwriter for one of my authors. And, you know, I told her this book is really difficult. This author is all over the place. I'm going to really need your time. You're going to have to block out some serious time for this. And she said, Okay, and I said, now go talk to them about the money. That's not me. You work that out with her, the the celebrity and their agent. So the celebrity and the agent come back to me and they're like, okay, we got it. She's doing this for X, Y, Z. And I was like, the hell she, what? I called her. I was like, ma'am, no, no, absolutely not. It was that low that I was like, we're not, I'm not gonna, because I would have had to, monitor and editor and edit this chick for 18 months while she's getting pickles i said ma'am absolutely not i can't tell you what to ask for right but i can tell you what to not accept there you go so i try to cut through the money thing as much as i can but it is tough time for a quick break stay with us all right, we're back here in Dear Culture. I'm talking hip-hop journalism and money with Leah King-Neal, which is a, a part of journalism that people, it seems like it's under lock and key or shrouded in all this mystery for so many of us, uh, especially in these journalistic spaces. But I kind of want to ask like a big picture question. What do you think of the state of hip-hop journalism currently such that it exists? I mean, it obviously exists, but like, what do you, as a person who was at places like the source and vibe and double XL and all that. And, and now, you know, I don't even, I can't say it's in a bad place. You know, I st- it's just, it's so sporadic, right? Like if you go through social media, like I'm not even sure that journalists are, I feel like AI is writing 90% of the articles that I come across. And that's just a new thing that people are talking about now. Right. So, you know, it's a lot of lists and just let's create controversy. Let's, let's, let's go ahead and say the 50 greatest rappers. And I'm going to put, MC brains at number one and see how that goes. Like there's a, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting space. Like, I don't know right. that I see as many profiles as we used to, as many features as we used to on artists. And maybe some of that is because artists are as in control of their own image now as the media used to be, right? Like you don't need a magazine. I can just go on, on Inst- Instagram and tell my story myself, right? I don't really need mm-hmm. those spaces. So what do you like, how do you feel about where hip hop journalism is at now? I feel like this is going to be some controversial thing for me to say, but I don't think hip hop journalism exists anymore. Not in the way we knew it to be and not the way we needed it to be. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think journalism is journalism and there are people in journalism who like hip hop and write about it. 
I don't see a community of hip hop journalists anymore. And that's not because we were better or whatever. It's because we needed each other. And it's because the artists needed us. Once we stopped meeting each other and the artists stopped meeting us, then hip hop journalism as an as a entity didn't exist. And I can always point to the death of hip hop journalism. It was 2005, I think, and Vanity Fair did this We Love Hip Hop issue. And Jay was on the cover and Beyonce was on the cover. And after that issue, you never saw Jay on a hip hop magazine cover again. That was literally it. From that moment on, hmm. never. Now, you may have seen something with a stock photo and a collection of quotes, but the traditional sit down, do the photo shoot, that ended in the mid 2000s and we haven't had him back since. Beyonce will dip a toe in, um, do an essence cover and et cetera. But in terms of like hip hop journalism, I know for, you know, I remember Jay coming to the source, like making his case for being on the cover in December of 1999 and wow. seeing my boss and other folks comparing and being like, do we put Jay on the cover? Do we put this? And all the machinations that come from, but he's going to do the, the, the tour on sports. The source is going to sponsor the tour. So if he doesn't get the cover, is that going to put the, just all this stuff going through. I know that Jay would sit down with the editor in chief, just over like some old mafia cigar thing. Like I'm the source <laughs> and I'm Jay. Like there was this thing, you know? And when my editor-in-chief, when Selwyn left to go to a website that was run by Russell Simmons, they had a, a party and Puffy came up to him and was like, I need to talk to you. Pulls him out of the party, in the truck. I want to start a website and I need you to be the editor-in-chief of my site, not Russell's site. Like, these are the things that are happening in the late 90s. Um, and we're depending on each other. And once the internet took over... And then once the biggest artists no longer needed us, Danielle can't say, and the number one record in the world anymore. Because if right. it's the number one record in the world, they're going to be on the cover of Elle or Cosmo or Vanity Fair or Rolling Stone. Which is so interesting because it feels like it's where the whole culture vulture thing came from, right? Like the 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 big magazines so i know i've always felt the way when i would see like hip-hop showing up in places where i didn't really feel like understood it but you would but they would always be hired by journalists who understood it right so it's like they're not just gonna have some random person writing an article it's like we're gonna hire and you know pick a name i, I don't want to just make up a name on, on something that didn't exist but you know like you would read this article, but it's by somebody you respect who came up in the way that, that you would want them to, right? Somebody who's been in these spaces. I'll give you a good example of that, a name. Um, Chris X, who was this, who is, I should say, a, yeah. just a formidable writer, just sick with the pen. Like every writer's favorite writer, you know how they say that about rappers? That's yeah. Chris X. And Chris, he was so dope that someone would let him freelance for Rolling Stone. Because it was just like, we're not going to block that blessing for you. So he often wrote for Rolling Stone and they would pull him in when it made sense, like a Wyclef story um, or a Jay story. So those were the kind of relationships I think you're talking about, where a yes. place like Rolling Stone is not embedded, but they'll get someone who is. And I think that started to break down, too, at some point, because now they'll just get yeah. anybody to write anything. Fair. And I, I used to feel a way about stuff like that, like. Because you, I wouldn't know who wrote the story first. I know the story's there. And I'm like, what is this doing here? This doesn't belong here. And then you read right. it's like, all right, this story, okay, now I get it. I see. And I, so I thought, like, kind of what you're pointing out with Jay being on Vanity Fair, like, that stuff kind of killed hip-hop magazines. Because if the ones with the money and the ones that get all the readership are able to still do the same thing, they can do, they can do the stuff that their fan base wants to wants to wants to read and wants to see but they can also dot like delve into hip-hop stuff and it's going to make it more difficult like i don't think any of those magazines could ever topple like the essences because like, that's such an innate magazine for like black women especially like that that market mm -hmm. is one that that we care so much about like i don't think it, it it works that way but 
when these other places are doing stories that Ebony and, and Vibe and all these other places can do, it's like, dang, what happens to these spaces too? It's not that the magazines can, you know, cause these, it's not that the big ones can make this happen because they can't make it happen until the artist says, yes, we'll do it. Fair enough. Yep. You know what I mean? It starts there. If don't think that, you know, hip hop journalism wasn't trying to get Jay on the cover vibe and the source. But at some point, hip hop has always been aspirational. So the whole point of hip hop is to move up, especially if you're Jay-Z, who famously offered a $100,000 bonus to anybody at Def Jam that could get him a one-on-one interview with Oprah Winfrey because he wanted to have that line. I had Oprah in the projects, drinking quarter waters. That's right. what he wanted. That was the 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 thing, you know? Hip-hop is not about stasis and staying still and staying in the same space. So it's a natural progression, that? huh? That's how, yeah, it just kind of it had no choice but to, to snoop and Martha Stewart. No it just, it gets there, right? It's just naturally yep. going to get there. That's right. Huh. That's right. Time for a quick break. Stay with us. And we're back. All right. I have a really important question to ask you. This is actually a okay. genuine, this, this is a personal, very important question to ask you. And I never I'm asked you this scared. before. How in the hell did you get an interview with Tyler Perry? This man don't talk to nobody <laughs> but like Oprah and, and Gail. He don't talk to people. And then you got him to basically admit that the whole nonsensical scene at the end of Acrimony with the boat was just like, he's what you talking about? What you talking about? Man, she got on the boat. She left the party, got on the boat. How did this even come to be? This is important. Like, this is the journalism. This is the stuff. This is the stuff okay. that matters. So <laughs> I do have to say that um, I... I I've spent my whole life doing profiles and I love them and I love going in with questions and all of that, but it hadn't happened in a while because I was in a different space. You know, I'm writing books and I'm editing books. So I get this call from Jermaine Hall, who actually uh, replaced me at the source when I left. I recommended him and I've worked for him at different places. He was the editor-in-chief of Vibe for a hot second. He was the editor-in-chief of King. Everywhere he's ever worked, I tag along. So he starts this site for Medium called Level. Um, and he wants an interview with Tyler Perry. But he's not, I mean, I'm not saying this to big myself up. It's just true. He was not sure if he could get the right person. Like, he did not want to send someone who wasn't able to get something out of somebody like Tyler Perry, who is notably just not the one. Doesn't answer questions. Right. Doesn't like... It's not there. So I have to say, you know, he did say Aaliyah can do it. If anybody can do it, Aaliyah's going to do it. Um, so honestly, I just think there was some type of connection because I don't think that he had has yet dealt with journalists like me, like old school, not scared of you, not going to listen to anybody who tells me what I can't ask. Uh, which I did have some things I was supposed to not ask, and I asked them all anyway. Um, I don't think he had had that for some time. And there were just a couple times that he's looking at me like, no, this B word did not. And I'm, <laughs> you know, like, I'm 50. I don't give a, I'm old, you know? Although I didn't give a damn when I was 25 either. But like I said in the very beginning, this is a great full circle. I'm not scared of anything. I don't care if you're not going to be my friend when this interview is over, because I have journalist friends who do care about that. I don't care if you're mad at me and you tell your publicist she asked me something we said we weren't going to. I don't care about none of that. I don't care about looking dumb. I don't care about you being mad. I don't care about getting kicked out. I care about nothing but a good story. And because I only had time to do a Q&A and not a proper profile, that means that I have to go in even more because each answer has to be full and you have to really talk it through. I can't just depend on having a sprinkle of quotes for a long story. It was Q&A. I had 15. That whole thing happened in 15 minutes. 15 really? minutes. That interview wow. was 15 minutes. It was his last interview after, I think he had done a dozen interviews, press interviews. That was also in my favor, too, because he was exhausted. Exhausted. <laughs> I don't know if I would have got those answers from him if I was the first interview that day um so combine me being 
a hot mess and asking everything I want. So, oh wait, and here's the final thing. I actually was on vacation when Jermaine called. I was in Miami and I was like, am I going to come home early for tell a Perry story? And I'm like, if I am, it's got to be worth it. Like I'm going in. I'm not going to leave my husband on the beaches of Miami to go interview Tyler Perry for some nonsense. So the night before I left, we watched Acrimony. That's the one, right? I was going to ask you I how you got the Acrimony question. Okay. Yeah, that's the one. I, I Acrimony's never seen the one. In my life. Never. I actually have not seen more than one Tyler Perry movie in my life. And I told him that. And he looked at me like, did you just admit that? <laughs> and I'm like, you don't speak to me. I'm sorry. I love you existing, but that doesn't mean your work is for me. So we watched the movie. And my husband and I are like, what just happened? And that was the first thing I thought. I was like, something's weird with this ending. So I go into Twitter and I put Tyler Perry acrimony ending and that's it. Exploded from five years ago, whenever that movie came out. Everybody's like, the boat, the boat, the boat. And I'm like, this is true. I got to ask him that. And my husband's like, um, I don't think, I think you're just supposed to ask him about the movie that he's promoting right now, not a movie from years back. And I was like, hmm, we'll see about that. And I must say, on a journalistic tip, I did wait until the very, very end. It was very, um, what's that that um, investigator's name? Matlock? No. The one who says, just one more thing. I can't. Columbo. Columbo yes. always says, one more thing. So I totally pulled the one more thing because when you say one more thing, it's like, okay, it's almost done. Let me just say whatever it is and so I can go. And I'm like, how should she get back on the boat? I also, from a journalistic point of view, I didn't say the character's name on purpose because I wanted to throw him off and be like, what is she talking about? I'm like, how should she get off the boat? And he was like, are you talking about acrimony? <laughs> and I was like, yes, we're going to talk about that for a minute. Because you asked that question, that interview traveled because everybody is just like, it was just like the, the Twitter thing. Everybody was like, Tyler Perry addresses the boat and everybody because everybody who's seen his movies are like in, in I don't know reads even a little bit was like how she get on the boat because that's the that's the I, I watch all of his movies I talked to you about this okay. before like I watch all the movies yeah. I you know you know I I enjoy some good nonsense and if there's one thing I'm gonna get I think this was up to the press run from a fall from grace which was famously yes um famously the one where you see people in the background eating air because the actress had been on set for so long so you know i love me some good nonsense i love me some shenanigans but the boat uh, i just like i just need somebody to i need somebody to explain it so when you did that it was like all of us like tyler perry speaks to it the, we can throw our theories out the window except he basically just said she got on the boat what you talking about i was right. like man he didn't speak to it right, right. it I was, was satisfying I was, yeah. for him to just talk about it but he yes. didn't speak to it all right. Well, I appreciate. I I just want you to know how much I appreciated that because it might not speak to you, but that was that was for me. That was for people like me who spent all our time arguing with other people about how in the world she got on the boat in acrimony and have genuine arguments about that stuff. We were like, man, somebody got in there, and I see it's Ali. I was like, this is the homie. The homie's doing this interview, and he don't never interview with anybody. Like that's he's notorious. For that, he like only speaks when he gets an opportunity to say just what he wants to say. Just what he wants to say. And <clears throat> just what it. he wants to say. We're gonna take one last break right here. We'll come back. We're gonna do our black fashions and black black recommendations and find out where can people find your work and everything else you got going on. So uh, stay tuned right here on Dear Culture. All right, we're back here on Dear Culture for our final segments here. But before we do, let's just start at the beginning. How did you even get into writing? I was a teacher, and I knew that. I wasn't going to be there for long. So I always had my antenna up about, you know, stuff that was going on. My The last day of school, in 1998, I'm watching my kids take their final exam and I'm reading an Essence magazine. In the back of the magazine, it says, do you want to be a writer? You should come to this eight-week course at Harvard University where you'll learn everything about publishing. And I was like, oh, word? So on my lunch break, I called the number and the woman, Lindy Hess, she said, I'm so sorry, but, you know, we're, it's done. You know, we have our group coming in next month. Next year, you should apply. I'll tell you everything you need. You sound like you would be a good candidate. And I was like, next year. The next day, I took off from work. I drove to Boston, um, to Cambridge, to this woman's house. 
I mean, to her office. And she's like, who are you? And I said, I'm Aaliyah S. King. You said to apply for next year, but I don't have that kind of time. She was like, well, you have to complete the application. I was like, boom. And you have to have two letters, boom, boom. I had driven to Rutgers. I went to Rutgers University. I had driven to Rutgers in the morning to get my transcripts and then went up to Cambridge. Like, Aaliyah king is not doing that, I just have to say. But I really was, you know, really focused on that. She let me in. And I remember she said, you know, the course is $5,000. And is that going to be an issue? And I'm like, you're damn right, it's going to be an issue. You're going to find some money for me. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. I got a full scholarship and I went... And that was really the jumping off point for me. There were a hundred people in my group. I would say 90% of them are still in the business in some way. Um, and it was a crash course in everything publishing, which I needed because I didn't major in it. Um, from there, I went to Billboard. From Billboard, I went to The Source. And that's where all the fun began. So that's an interesting... So for one, I, I didn't know that. I had I actually don't know that I knew that that's how you got into to writing and all that in the first place though it's a very uh hip-hop story actually like listen I'm gonna I'm gonna make a way I'm gonna find a way I'm gonna make a way and you know it's it's you kick the door down and you get in and it turns out it worked out what's your relationship to hip-hop at this point so this is in you said 98 right this is 98 mm-hmm. um, so 98 so hip-hop is uh Two and a half decades old. We're in the go. We're in from from my map. We're in the nineties, right? We're in, we're post Wu Tang, like we're in the shiny suit era, so to so to speak. Mm-hmm. Biggie's mm-hmm. gone. Puff is gone. I mean, uh, I'm sorry. Biggie's gone. Pac is gone. Right. Yep. Lauren is a supernova. Yeah. You know. So where are you in? Where is hip hop in your life? You're from New Jersey, so you're part of like you. You're seeing all this like in real time, as far Absolutely. as I can tell, for mm-hmm. your life. Absolutely. Um, I'm from Illtown, you know, Naughtyville. Um, I grew up seeing them performing in talent shows at my school before they were naughty by nature. And you could look at Tresh and just tell he was a superstar. But I must say, and that's what's interesting about being able to talk about this stuff now, because I couldn't tell this story. I was not a hip hop head. I, I, I had it all in me by osmosis. I'm from East Orange. Like Redman grew up a mile away from me. There's no way I wasn't going to be filled with it and love it. But honestly... I was an R&B girl and it's taken me, how long has it been now? 20 years to be able to say that publicly and be okay with it because the source was such a gatekeeping space that the idea, if I had said in my interview, I want to work here and I'm good at what I do, but I really like Mariah more than I like, you know, Fat Joe. That just wasn't going to fly. So when I was at Billboard, I was freelancing for XXL. I was freelancing for The Source. I was freelancing for Vibe. And I was paying attention to the work I was doing, not necessarily to the music, which was okay until it came time to rate albums for mics. But we'll get to that. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, so I really did not come up. I came up loving hip hop the way you love your sister. She's there. Of course you love her. Um but I was not fanatical. I was not a fan boy or girl. And I didn't realize until much later that my, the person who hired me hired me for that reason because there were enough fanboys there. But I didn't know that at the time. That is, that, look, that is interesting. And I just kind of assumed like everybody was a complete fanboy, like you said, of, of, of hip hop. Like I would have been, right? If I had those opportunities, if I'd walked in the door, it'd have been 100% like, like wide eye and, and bright eyed and bushy tail kind of thing for me. So that's interesting. So let's talk about you getting to the source. So you're writing for Double XL. You're like you're writing for these hip hop spaces. You're freelancing for these spaces. So yes. what's that like? And then what's that like getting into the source? Because at that point, the source is still the source, right? It's still the hip hop bible. They've had you know yeah. they've yeah. been issues and stuff, but it's still the hip hop bible. We still care yeah. yes, about the mics in the source. Absolutely. We care about who's on the cover. We care about who's getting reviewed. We care about every single page. Um, And then, you know, just so we are clear, the magazine is like 350 pages for the September issue. So things are things are cute. When I was freelancing, I did I didn't do any stories that were more than like 250 words, maybe a short little review in the back of Double XL, a short news story in the front of the book at Vibe. For the source, I was doing really small news stories as well. So I wasn't like 
taken off with those things. But for a writer to have bylines in all three of those magazines, um, it was, you know, six months in, it was huge. It was huge for me to even have those tiny clips because you know you can build those up to do the next thing. But for me, the next thing was going to come out of sheer will, not the quality of my work. I'm I'm a great writer and I always have been, but it's always it has not been my writing that's gotten me to where I am now. It's been my sheer ridiculous tenacity and I have this weird thing where I don't care about making myself look stupid. I don't care. I don't care about not being popular. I don't care about how people look at me. I don't care that I didn't have the fly two-way pager when everyone had one. I was never into that. I just wanted the good story. Before we get to the, to, to the Black Fashions and Black Foundation, I do want to ask you, what advice do you have for up-and-coming writers who want to write about hip-hop or anything, just up-and-coming writers in general? I give this advice a lot, and most young folks don't really take advantage of it, but the biggest difference between now and when I was coming up is that you have the power of being a published writer in like 60 seconds. You can set up a site, you can set up a blog, you can set up anything that's going to showcase your writing in a minute and it'll look clean and it'll look, it won't just be an email to an editor with some words on it. I always tell folks, if this is what you want to do, start something really simple, update it regularly. If regularly is a, every month, fine. If regularly is every day, fine. Just regularly. I can't tell you how many times I hear from writers and I say, do you have anything I can read? And they're sending me PDFs and they're sending me all kinds of heaviness that I'm just like, I just want to read a little couple sentences, not edited by somebody already. What do you do? What are you about? Um, so I always say that. I always say start with your own work. You can give yourself some type of uh, whatever it is that you want to cover. Cover it yourself. You can literally, I see kids on Twitter and Instagram and the TikToks, and they are reviewing movies in real time. And I'm like, you don't even realize this content. Right. All the stuff that you're saying here, you could put green leaf. You know, here's what I have to say about episode one. That's content. That's something that if you want to write, you can actually look at. Um, I also noticed that folks don't follow. Another thing we did not have in my day, couldn't follow folks. I couldn't even figure out where Danielle Smith worked or what she looked like, you know? Now you can Google anybody you want in any field you want and follow all of them. Writers might not admit it, but we pay attention to who follows us. As soon as we get that follow alert, we're like, hmm, okay. And yep. engage, engage, don't be creepy. But engage. And one other thing that writers and editors will always appreciate is compliments. Hey, Aaliyah, I read your story on blah, blah, blah. I thought it was really solid, blah, blah, blah. Short, sweet, cute, done. The first thing I do when I do hear from writers is, I don't know if most people do this, but I put their name into my Gmail. I do a search in my Gmail to see if we've ever communicated, if anyone's ever brought them up. I am 49 years old. I've had Gmail for 20 years. So you can imagine that many times that name pops up. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it ain't. Um, but be in contact. Lightly be in contact. Um, so start your own way of being heard, whatever that looks like. Podcast counts as well, if that's what you want to do. Um, follow the people that are in the world that you want to be in. Pay attention to what they're working on. If, a, if an aspiring author comes up to me and says, so where do you work? I'm kind of done at that point because how are you asking to speak to me and you don't know where I work? It's really easy to find out where I work and what I do. Well, we work in this writing space here. And as as somebody who's who's owned a publish button and edited uh, over time, I think all of that advice is the, the best advice you could possibly offer to somebody is basically be consistent. Don't yeah. be creepy. Yep. And uh, <laughs> have some idea who I am when you speak to me is probably as good as it's going to get <laughs> when it comes That's to providing it. writing Not advice. call Panama and say, what, where do you work? What are you known oh, for yeah. exactly? My no. favorite is when people email and it's like, yeah, I was a huge fan of VBS. 
I was like, Vacation Bible Study was my joint too when I was young, but mm. that's not this. Yeah. So yep, can you, like, who are you, like, who are you reaching out I to? Like, all right. Well, thank you for that advice. Um, now we're going to have a little bit of fun with you here and see, uh, we do this segment here at Dear Culture called Black Fashion, which is where we ask our guests to share something about them that people might be surprised to find out about you because you black, hence the term black fashion. So do you have a black fashion, something that you can share with the people? I do. But here's the thing. Like, Uh-oh. as soon as I heard the word black fashion, I knew it. Like it popped into my head and I was like, you know, this is it. But then I was like, but that's so like, um, I feel like it's so cliche for that to be it. Yeah, um, she going to say she ain't seen the color purple. Here we go. I have seen the color purple. Very, Listen, very people many. Be, people be surprising me with the, the things that, that that they just don't like ain't up on. Like, yeah, like, listen. Everybody's household wasn't watching black movies the way that my household was watching black movies. That's what I right. found out mostly doing stuff like this. Right. I get that. Nope, it's not that. It's fried chicken. I don't like it. I never have. It, it's very cliche, but it's, it's, it's cliche, but yet when I'm forced to deal with it, is no less shock, no less awe, no less anger, no less rage, even though it's cliche. So I can eat one bite. If it's a wing thingy, I can eat one bite and then the rest goes down. And I'm sure, I don't know if you guys covered this. There's this little meme about like how much chicken you eat. Yes. I'm always it's like one, two, three, four, five, and they got the five different versions. I'm one. Wow. I'm you one bite. That little, that little bumpy part of the wing, that's it. And I don't do flats, period. I do that's not. That's a black like, fashion. That's your black fashion right there. So you're telling on yourself what? now. Now you, you, got, all, you got it all. <laughs> I don't do wings. But I just realized I like fried chicken. I just don't like fried chicken wings, which I think might be worse. It's okay. The wing I don't like. All right. It's, yeah. Listen, I'll do like that's a why we do wing. this. I do you a let... fried cutlet and, okay. and I do chicken parm. There's no wings. Okay. All right. Listen, that's why we do this because it's always fun to find out about people and not just their professions or things, but also the personal stuff like that. And that's that's an interesting that is interesting. Cause I imagine your husband, he's does he like wings? He seemed like he would it's like it. wings. It's I would it. imagine. I mean, he, he my child like... is down to the marrow. Okay. Like she's break it open so you're the odd person out okay I am. you're the you're I okay am. i am fair enough time for a quick break stay with us and we're back all right well to counteract that that proof that black people are not a monolith we also ask people to provide a black recommendation which is a recommendation about something for by and about blackness black people something that that you uh engage with and enjoy that's for blackness that you would like to share with others so do you have a black emendation? I certainly do. And it's so interesting you said that because my black emendation is Anscape.com. And it is a space by, for, and about black folks. And um, it's a place where I get lost in a story at least once a week. And not just because I work there. So my job for Disney is to make sure that these awesome stories on Anscape become books, as, as well as books that just come to me because they're books. So I love for people to check out Anscape. Most people already do. It was formerly known as The Undefeated. Um, it's a great space for storytelling. Uh, some of my favorite writers are there, especially my, some of my favorite writers from hip-hop journalism are there, like Jesse Washington. Um, it's just... It's a good space. And it feels like hip-hop journalism. Even if that's not always the topic, it's the sort of in-depth, you yeah. know, original photography, original reporting, actual quotes. It's that kind of work that gets me happy. So check out Anscape. And also, it feels like this is just a really good time for authors. You know, I'm sitting here in this chair gatekeeping, I guess. Um, but my job is to acquire books. Now, the only thing that separates me from other folks is that I only can take proposals from agented work. 
unfortunately, I can't accept proposals that don't have an agent from offers who don't have an agent. But if you do have an agent and you've just been sitting around and trying to figure out what your next move is going to be, your next book should be your next move should be figuring out that book. I don't do fiction. Um, I only do nonfiction, but it's a really sweet time for blackness in publishing. Um, when I came here, my boss said to me, just so you know, Anscape Books is by for and about black folks, period. And she's white. I love it. <laughs> but she's one of those kind of white folks that say black right, if that makes sense. You know what I'm talking about. They <laughs> yep. just say it and you're and it's good. It works. And she said, that's what we do. So my collaborators are black. My photographers are black. My fact checkers are black. Like even within Disney, um, Anscape Books is an ecosystem of by, for, and about black folks. And that makes me really happy. So that's my black recommendation. Go to Anscape, check out the work that's being done there. And then... Go tell your agent you want to submit a proposal to Aaliyah King Neal. And yes, I just said that. Yeah, I said listen, it. I was just I was just about to ask you how like where how can people keep up with you where if you want to be found and you just basically rapped for me. You basically just like, hey, come come get me here. But how do people keep up with what you got going on if they want to find out more about you or read things you got going on or like how do you people find you if you want to be found? You can find me. I don't even need to tell you how to find me. If you really want to, you can find me. You could go to Very Smart Brothers and read some of the best writing I've ever done in my career. And I mean that. So you can find me. If you really want to find me and really about that life, you can find me. And if you have an agent, your agent can find me. So we good. You can, if, if there's anything you want to know about me, Google it. Did I just I say Google say. it? You did, but you know what? That's that's facts because I have Googled yeah, you before. So if you really want to, yeah. I'm here. Yeah. I'm well, here. listen, I want to say thank you for joining us today here on Dear Culture. It's a fun conversation, amazing conversation. Got some stories, got some insights. Like you're a good friend of mine. I appreciate you. I appreciate your advice and your consult. Whenever I've asked, you've been very forthcoming and very helpful for me, especially on my writing journey, which is in process. So let's I, go, uh, you know, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us here, dear culture. Um, and thank you to everybody who's listening, who's checking out this podcast. Yes. You make sure you check out everything Aaliyah has going on. You can go read old stories, check out her books. Just listen, if her name's on it. I promise you was good. And I, I don't mean that just to somebody who knows her. I mean, that is in, in a genuine sense with somebody who's had the it's opportunity true. to work with you. Yeah. So <laughs> for dear culture, thanks for listening. Have a black one. started this podcast to talk about not just what black writers write about but how well personally it's on my bucket list to have one of my books banned <laughs> i know that's probably bad but Ooh. i think Ooh, spicy they were yelling n-word go home and i was looking around for the n-word because i knew it couldn't be me because i was a queen <laughs> but i'm telling people to quit this mentality of identifying ourselves yeah. by our work to start to live our lives and to redefine the whole concept of how we work and where we work and why we work in the first place. My, my biggest strength throughout throughout my career has been having incredible mentors and specifically black women. I mean, I've been writing poetry since I was like eight. You know, I've been reading Langston Hughes and James Baldwin and Maya Angelou and so forth and so on since I was like a little kid. Like the banjo was blackly black, right? Mm -hmm. For Many, many, African. many years. Everybody yes. knew. Because sometimes I'm just doing some Sam that because <laughs> I just want to do it. An honor to be here. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing. Keep shining bright. And we and, and like you said, we gonna keep writing black. As always, you can find us on the Grio app or wherever you find your podcasts. The Grio Black Podcast Network presents Dear Culture. Truish Black Stories. When you think of sheer artistry, 
sheer creativity, um, the ability for someone to bring Black people together in the most fundamental ways. It's, you know, I would say of my four, Randy Watson's my number one. When the news about Ricky first broke, what I heard about it is the thing you hear about, you know, every time somebody Black dies, that it was gang related. That means the police don't know what happened. So they just said, probably the gangs, probably, you know, the other black dudes. Where were you when you heard the story about them suckers getting served by Wade's dance crew? You know, it's crazy that you mentioned this. So as a New Yorker, right, everyone knows where they were on 9-11, right? You know, a couple years later, right, 2003, everyone hears about this crazy moment in a boxing ring, because that's where dancers do get out, right? In boxing rings. If you could say something to Ricky right now, what would you say to him? Ricky, you shouldn't have never got that girl pregnant. You knew I had a crush on you. You should have got with me instead. Moments in Black culture examined like never before. Join us as we dive into the Black moments that changed us, that changed the world. Make sure to subscribe to Dear Culture so you never miss an episode.